0: Hey folks, welcome to our Law Gospel devotional for the week of March 9th, or I guess March 8th would have been Monday. Uh, I'm Eric Sorensen. I'm pastor at Hillside Church in Roxbury, New Jersey, which those of you watching from Hillside, of course, already know that. But I'm also a contributor to 1517 in ways, uh, well, in varied ways. I make these videos each week. I also... um, Uh, I'm co-host of the podcast, 30 Minutes in the New Testament, and do a a few other things. But uh, for our purposes here, I don't need to go into all that today. Uh, Good to be here with you again. Each week, we gather to look for God's two words in a a passage of Scripture, usually from one of the various lectionary texts uh, for the upcoming Sunday. In uh, this upcoming Sunday, just has an absolute treasure trove of lectionary texts. There's really uh, every single one of them just is packed to the brim with great news, folks. Um, and so, without further ado, let's go ahead and and take a look at what some of those patches passages are. We'll begin by looking at the other lectionary texts in uh, the passage or or in this coming, this upcoming Sunday's service. Uh, First of all, the gospel text for the fourth Sunday of Lent is Probably the most famous passage in all of the Bible, or certainly one of them, and that's John 3.14-21. through 21. It, of course, includes John 3.16, which we all know is the most famous verse, at least associated with sporting events, even if it really, in content anyway, has nothing to do with sports. But nevertheless, that's, it's one of the few verses that everyone in the culture has heard and knows about. And of course, it includes those wonderful words for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, then we move to the Old Testament passage, and the Old Testament passage is from the Book of Numbers. Now, if you've read the Book of Numbers, then you're probably saying, is there anything that actually can, anything good that can come out of the Book of Numbers? Much like Nathaniel speaking to Philip about Nazareth. But of course, there actually is. There's numerous prophecies about uh, Jesus in the book of Numbers. And even the genealogies that might seem boring at times to you actually do contain some really important historical details. But we'll set that aside for now. In this passage, of course, what we're shown again and again and again is true to form is the Israelites are grumbling and complaining. And therefore, they're accusing Moses and by extension, God of bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness for the purpose of starving and killing them. This is not an unusual complaint, and they're really whining hard about it. And so God decides to show them, well, that things can be a lot worse. And he sends some uh, what are called fiery serpents in the text, but really it's like snakes that have quite a bite that can actually do damage. And these snakes start to kill people. And so the people, what do they do again? They realize, oh yeah, I guess it wasn't so bad. And they repent and they ask for Moses to intercede on their behalf. And Moses does that very thing and uh, and they are spared. And the way they're spared is by looking to a bronze serpent that has been lifted up. and if Even if they're bitten, if they look to that bronze serpent, then they will be saved. Well, Jesus in John 3, right before he gives the famous verse I just uh, recited, actually says that that whole event was meant to point to him because he says, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up, I'll be lifted up. And by implication, if you look to me on the cross, you will be saved eternally. And then the Psalm again recounts the love of God and his steadfast love that led the people of Israel through the wilderness, which again, the Psalms are sort of filled with hindsight being twenty twenty. Uh, you you don't have it's nearly as much grumbling by the time you get to the Psalms, but you have people reveling in God's mercy that got them through their time in the wilderness. And so that's the that those are the surrounding texts for this weekend. But we're going to be looking at the epistle text, and the epistle text for this weekend is quite possibly the clearest law and gospel text in all of Scripture. Yes, indeed, that means we're looking at Ephesians chapter two, verses one through ten. Now, some of you are going to hear that passage, you're going to be familiar with it, and you're saying, okay, you're cheating. I mean, come on, this is the most obvious law gospel text ever. How can you pull that one out? Listen, I didn't make the lectionary text. I didn't pick them out. It just so happens to be the one for this Sunday, and I'm going to gladly talk about it because it really is very, very abundantly clear. So first of all, the words of the epistle text in Ephesians 2 begin with, and you were dead. In other news, or in other words, we're starting with the bad news first. It reads like this And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Well, tell me how you really feel, Paul. Please, don't hide anything. You know, if there's one thing that's abundantly clear about Paul is that he really doesn't hide anything. I mean, if you wanna hear him get as blunt as possible, you can look to passages like this, or Romans one, two, and three, where in describing the condition of humanity due to the fall into sin, he doesn't pull any punches. I mean, there's there's no wishy-washy. There's no softening it up. He just says it like it is. I mean, let's dig in a little bit more to this law on blast passage. He says, by nature, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually, it's as if we're dead. We are followers of the devil, the prince of the power of the air, it's, it, the devil is called in this passage, by nature. And thus, we are driven by our passions. That is what the natural human being does due to the fall into sin. And then and so it makes all the sense in the world that we are by nature children of wrath. That is the condition of fallen humanity apart from Christ. Paul is abundantly clear about that and this isn't the only passage. Again, this is what the declaration of the law's verdict is. The law looks at humanity, sees no one perfect, and sees only rebels or only people trying to live independent of God, and declares everyone guilty by nature, children of wrath but of course, that's not the end of the passage. Thank God, it's not the end of the passage, or else we'd be we'd have every reason in the world to be filled with despair. But no, the passage goes on to give two incredibly powerful words right after that diagnosis. And those words are, but God. After all of the listing that Paul gives of our condition naturally because of our sin, the very next words are, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice the language. Not after we had ceased being dead in our trespasses, but when we were dead in our trespasses, God in great love made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Because of the riches of his mercy, because of his great love, because of his grace, he has made us alive. That's the point. The words right after that might even sound confusing at first, but they're actually words of incredible comfort. And it leads to the question of well, are we already raised with Christ? Because he says this in verse six, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now let's take that apart just a little bit. What, what does that mean that we've already been raised, that we already are seated with him? how can that be? I mean, I'm here. I'm in my office in New Jersey. I am not in heaven. I have abundant reminders all the time that I have not reached that paradise yet. So what does he mean? Well, I think what he means when he says seated is he's really talking about a a position or a status. Basically, what he's saying is, because you have been saved by, by Christ, On account of Christ, there's no more work to be done in regard to your salvation. You're seated with him. You're resting in him is the idea. There's nothing else left for you to do. Christ has accomplished it all. When he said it is finished on the cross, he actually means it. He's done it all. And why did he do it? Verse seven says it clearly. Let me go back there again. Verse seven says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Translation, he does it because he wants us to know and to see for the rest of eternity, just how incredibly gracious he is and to glory in it. To glory in the fact that he could save a sinner like me. Which, folks, I got to say, I think we just get a tiny glimpse into it here because those of us who are Christians, we know that we are sinners, that we've fallen short. But we're still prone to rationalizing. We're still prone to excusing. We're still prone to thinking that we can get somewhat close to fulfilling the law or at least be a good person. Not even recognizing, no, how much God had to do in order to save us. Not recognizing totally how much grace it actually took. Well, the reason he saved us is because he wants to show us that for the rest of our lives into eternity. It reminds me a little bit of you know when Willy Wonka turns over the chocolate factory to uh, to Charlie at the end of that movie, and I'm sure most of you have seen it. After going through much testing and much trial and much difficulty and, frankly, most of the kids being shown to be brats, uh, Charlie is, is seen to pass the test, so to speak, by Willy Wonka. And freely out of Willy Wonka's grace, he doesn't need to give anything to Charlie. He gives the entire chocolate factory to this kid. It's all his. The chocolate factory is yours. It's as if God is saying, when when we think about heaven or when we get to heaven, it's all yours. I've done everything necessary to give it to you. I've given you all the forgiveness you need. I've given you all the new life you need and it will never run out. Well, then we get to verse eight. And now we're going to deal with something that I think, well, many of us have heard in churches. When we get to verses eight and nine, suddenly there's a question of sort of the mechanics of salvation. And often what's presented is something like this. Yes, God has done everything necessary. That's his grace. That's his part but you still do have a part to play. And that's your faith. Grace is his part. Faith is your part. I bet some of you have heard preachers say that. Well, let me just say this. Um, That's incorrect. It's just not true. And the reason why is because Paul makes it abundantly explicitly clear in verses eight and nine, that no, even the faith we need, even the belief we need in this God of grace is supplied to us by him too. This is what he writes for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, what are the antecedents to this grace and faith? You, you could say it this way, and these are not your own grace and faith. They're not your own doing. They are the gift of God. They are. They're the gift of God. All of it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, what the, the insidious thing about believing that faith is something you do on your part is that you can actually make faith into a work that you do and then it becomes something you boast in. We'll find any way as human beings to sort of compare ourselves to other people. And certainly we could do that with our degree of faith or the size of faith or whatever, but nope, can't do it. We're not allowed to take credit for it. It's not of ourselves. It's something freely given by God. So even the faith we need to to be saved, once again, all bestowed by God. The repentance we need it's granted to us by God, God actively repents us, folks. I'm telling you when it comes to the salvation game, it is all God doing the verbs all and that's what Paul wants to make abundantly clear. You couldn't do the verbs if you wanted to. You were dead in trespasses and sins, dead people don't help out, dead people don't contribute, they're dead, they can't do anything no. If we're going to be made alive, God's got to do all the things. And he does all the things in this passage through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the remaining question we have here is, if our salvation is so secure, then why is it we're still here? Well, Paul concludes the passage in verse 10 with the answer to that question. Quote, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, it is true. The reason that we're still here, and we haven't just been beamed up to heaven, is because there's good things that we're called to do. But once again, notice who's doing the verbs. God prepared beforehand the works for us to walk in. Yeah, it's true. I I can't help but think about the the presentation of Christians often being unconscious of the works they do when they stand before God. Uh, consider the story in Matthew chapter 25 of the sheep and the goats. There you have those who were saved called the sheep and those who are condemned called the goats. And, and the sheep are standing before Jesus and Jesus lists off all these good things they've done for the least of his brothers. And he says, if you've done it to the least of them, you've done it to me. And the striking thing about what the sheep say is, when did we do that? I I didn't even know suggesting that that the sheep had good works being done through them even though they may have been totally unaware of it they weren't even aware of how god was using them and yet interestingly enough the goats when they're told that they didn't do the works say precisely the opposite when didn't we do that you see the contrast? They were depending on their works and they thought they had enough. But the sheep who had no hope in their works at all and no knowledge of their works at all, well, it turns out they were the ones justified and they were the ones that God was actually working through. Folks, he is going to accomplish good works through you, whether you're conscious of it or not, whether it's even in spite of you or not. Yes, he's prepared it beforehand. It's part of his plan for you and he will do it. It reminds me a little bit of something I've seen quite a bit, probably too much in my life as I've traveled too many times in airports. But for those of you who have been in airports, you know what this scene is. You know the the people mover things, you know, the things that you can stand on to give you a little break from carrying around your heavy luggage. You can just stand and what it does is it moves you from point A to point B. Now, you can walk on there. There's the side where you can walk. And it's fine. It's good to, I mean, I, I typically will do both. I might stand for a little bit and then I'll move over to the other side and I'll walk. But the point is the conveyor belt is doing the, it's doing the bulk of the work. It's doing the work. It's getting you from point A to point B. God is similar. God is doing the same thing. He's saying here, he's prepared good works for us to walk in them. He is the one doing the verbs through us and indeed he will accomplish those verbs through us because he has promised that he has done everything necessary to save us in Christ Jesus our lord and so that is the law and the gospel for today as we looked at the first 3 verses depicting to us our natural state which was quite discouraging and then the last 7 verses which promised to us god's grace and mercy in christ jesus that will bring it to that will bring us to the end and will bring us to our eternal home. All right, much blessing to you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.